ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the, la- the nation's leaders fire up over boat arrivals, Anthony Albanese and Peter Dutton accusing each other of making life easy for people smugglers. Also, the Prime Minister uses permanent marker on a journalist's arm in a pledge to maintain Western Australia's sizeable share of the GST pie. And our once thriving live music scene is under threat as the cost of living punches a hole in ticket sales for smaller gigs. There's artists that can't fill big stadiums. You have to grow, you have to be able to find a safe space to be able to hone your craft and find your fans. Thanks for your company. The vexed debate around asylum seekers has erupted once again after 39 people last Friday arrived by boat in Western Australia, a remote part of northern Western Australia. The opposition leader is blaming the government for slashing funding to border protection and reducing surveillance patrols. The Prime Minister says Peter Dutton is acting as a cheer squad for people smugglers. So how does such talk impact the people smuggling trade and could it encourage more arrivals in the future? Alison Shaw reports. It's an all-too-familiar political debate. After the arrival of 39 asylum seekers on the shores of Western Australia last week... It's clear that they don't have the same surveillance in place that we had when we were in government. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has questioned the government's ability to manage border security. It's inconceivable that a boat of this size, carrying 40-plus people, could make it to the mainland without there being any detection. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese fired back, accusing the opposition leader of sending the wrong message to people smugglers. Peter Dutton will continue uh, to be a cheer squad for things that actually undermine our borders. People who arrive by boat get sent offshore. That's the measures we're putting put in place, together with boat turnbacks. And by definition, uh, Peter Dutton's arguments are absurd because they don't match what's actually happened. The commander of Operation Sovereign Borders, Rear Admiral Brett Sonter, says the mission hasn't changed since it was set up a decade ago. And in the statement, he said any alternate narrative will be exploited by criminal people smugglers. Dr John Coyne from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute agrees with that assessment. Public debate that brings into question um, the security and the current policy settings unfortunately does one thing, which is increases the hope of very desperate people who are seeking opportunity to come to Australia that they might be resettled there. And what will the current political debate mean for the future arrival of asylum seekers by boat to Australia? The minute there's any hope that people can be resettled, what we will see is um, we will see people hop on to barely seaworthy at best um, vessels Um, who will risk their lives in perilous sea conditions uh, to move between countries. The opposition says the government has overseen a reduction in surveillance. The Australian Border Force's most recent annual report documented a 14% decrease in flying hours compared to the year before. 
It says that's caused by a lack of pilots and maintenance of planes. But Dr Coyne says there's been no formal reduction in surveillance. The amount of surveillance in terms of off-sovereign borders ebbs and flows based on a range of factors um, from everything from um, sea conditions and weather um, through to the availability of air platforms. There hasn't been a fundamental change in terms of the level of surveillance. Last October, the then commander of Operation Sovereign Borders, Rear Admiral Justin Jones, told Senate estimates that while his department had seen that 14% reduction in flying hours, it also has ability to call on the Defence Force to fill any gaps. He says that means the surveillance is adequate. But Shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tehan says the government needs to step up and make sure the Australian Border Force is properly resourced. Well, the ADF can help, but the, what we need is the ABF to be a properly resourced to do their job. When you start squeezing resources out of the ABF, the sad consequence is that you start to see boats arrive. Dr John Coyne says the debate over whether funding has been cut is also murky. Over the last several months, we've seen an increased focus on things like uh, for the Australian border force of vapes, of illicit tobacco. Um, so, you know, there isn't an endless bucket of, of uh, finances and resources for departments to approach these problems. And so there is always an ebb and flow and a prioritisation. If the question here is, you know, has there been a deprioritisation of sovereign borders? I don't think that is the case. He says there ultimately needs to be a bipartisan approach on top of what is already a bipartisan policy. Alison Shaw there. If there was any doubt about the importance of WA voters for the federal government, they were struck out today with permanent marker. That's what the Prime Minister used to sign a pledge on a journalist's arm that the generous GST deal with WA, described by one leading East Coast economist last week as the worst public policy decision this century, isn't going anywhere. The government also announced a tax break to save the struggling nickel industry where a downturn is threatening thousands of jobs in the state. John Daly reports. It's a contentious topic in West Australian politics. WA's piece of the GST pie. In Perth, residents seem strongly opposed to any reduction. WA's been on the, uh, let's call it the receiving end or the lack of the receiving end of the GST for many, many years. We went down the whole uh, track of equalising this, let's call it that, equalising so we get our fair share some, some years back. I would not support a change to the D- WA GST share. Now, if they did change it, would that maybe change the way you vote? Um, yes, more recently, because he did, I believe, he did already go back on a promise in the Level 3 tax refunds, and now this would be another backing down of that promises or commitments. No, because once you've been given something... You've got to keep it. Do you, do you think there'd be a backlash if, if it was to change? Yes, in Western Australia. Why is that? Well, people are greedy. They don't ever want to lose anything. But many, in... many people in Western Australia don't realise once we were supported by the Eastern States. Now we don't need to because of the resources found in Western Australia. So, I mean, do you think that the deal that WA is getting at the moment is fair then under that under that 
idea? Probably not. The former Turnbull government brokered this deal in 2017-18, meaning for every dollar of GST raised in WA, the state gets a minimum of 70 cents back, like every other state. Back then, WA was only receiving 30 cents for every GST dollar because of the money it was pulling in from lucrative mining royalties. In his visit to the state today, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese assured West Australians the GST deal would remain. He even penned the pledge on one reporter's arm. I've got pens. Here you go. Here you go. Give us your arm. Come on. Give us your arm. Give us your arm. Give us your arm. Well, we've put in place security for your GST share to make sure WA gets delivered uh, what it's entitled to. Uh, we put those measures in place. We not only put those measures in place, we put in place all the measures for every state and territory and finalised that uh, arrangement with the Premiers, including Premier Cook, uh, last December. Uh, so it's very clear our position and that security, which I must say was not left there by the former government, we've made sure through the national cabinet process that that security is there. The federal government is under pressure to abandon the deal when the Productivity Commission reviews it in 2026. Economist Saul Eslake dubbed it the worst public policy decision taken this century. WA's Chamber of Commerce and Industry Chief Economist Aaron Morey says that's a short-sighted view. Rather than just about being dividing the pie, these reforms are about growing the pie. And unfortunately... Some of these East Coast-based economists have fallen into that zero-sum trap. The federal government has also pledged more support for the state's struggling nickel industry. Global nickel prices are down almost 40% year-on-year because of a glut of cheaper supply from Indonesia. The federal government has added nickel to its critical minerals list and is fast-tracking tax credits to help prop up the industry. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. And we are looking towards smart targeted, time-limited support. Uh, this is a short-term issue for what is in the long term a very critical industry for Australia. Mining giant BHP has foreshadowed potential closures of its nickel operations in WA, which employ about 3,300 workers. That could have big consequences in the state's goldfields region. Malcolm Cullen is the Coolgardie Shire president. From from where we sit as a local government, uh, the impact, uh, you know, with the whether the, the, some of the mines actually close, uh, um, in particular with BHP, I think it's uh, it's it, it could have a serious Im- impact over three local governments in the goldfields. He wants the state and federal governments to consider more proactive ways to future-proof these commodity-reliant towns and regions, perhaps by including better use of mining taxes and royalties. It's probably difficult to predict, but I think we can do things better in how we react to those um, and, you know, look at how we can make that future a little, a little bit broader, for, especially for, like, towns such as Cambalda. That's Coolgardie Shire President Malcolm Cullen, ending that report from John Daly. Papua New Guinea remains in a state of shock after one of the nation's worst ever tribal massacres. Authorities originally reported more than 50 people had been killed in an ambush in the remote highlands region, but that toll has now been revised to at least 26 deaths. The PNG police commissioner and observers of the country's security situation say the flood of firearms into the country is making mass killings like this possible. Samantha Donovan reports. 
The massacre took place in Enga province in the PNG highlands. Authorities say one tribe was on its way to attack a neighbouring group when they were ambushed. Sir Peter Ipitas is the province's governor. On last count uh, from the police, uh, they said there's a collection of about 26 uh, dead bodies and uh, the count will still increase today. So uh, uh, it's a very, very sad uh, situation. But uh, we knew that this, this fight was going to be on and uh, we alarmed the uh, security forces uh, last week to make sure that uh, they took appropriate action to ensure this, this didn't occur. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the security forces uh, uh, were complacent and uh, we have this very, very high number of deaths. David Manning is the PNG Police Commissioner. He says the incident happened in the early hours of yesterday morning. Where a gun battle between warring tribes uh, um, ensued. This type of you know, carnage is only made possible through, you know, through the use of many, many small arms and um, you know, it is a concern. Professor Sinclair Dinan is with the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University and has spent time in PNG researching law and order and security issues. He says there's always been conflict between groups in PNG. Particularly in the PNG Highlands and that goes back for as long as you, you care to look and what we appear to be sort of seeing much more of are, are conflicts that just never end and that continue to escalate. And part of the reason behind that is the use of modern firearms, which obviously create more casualties and it becomes very difficult to sort of settle things down according to traditional sort of approaches to peacemaking. What are the groups fighting over? Sort of land disputes. These are all often uh, fights that are happening in areas where there is a very limited government presence, very few government services. And part of the lack of government presence, of course, is lack of, you know, a, a permanent police presence or lack of, you know, permanent court system that can address some of the issues that people are in dispute over in a timely and efficient manner. You mentioned the proliferation of weapons. Where do you think they're coming from? Weapons in PNG are not a new thing. And, you know, some people would say that PNG is now awash with with firearms. For a long time, people were talking about the the drugs for guns link across the Torres Strait. I mean, that's certainly one potential uh, avenue for bringing guns into the country. PNG has uh, a largely unmarked 750-kilometre-long border, land border, with with Indonesia. There is a low-level insurgency going on on the other side of the border uh, between local groups and uh, armed groups and and the Indonesian military. That's another way that weapons can come across the border. And in the context of elections, which is a very significant uh, context for the use of firearms and fighting uh, in the PNG Highlands in particular, many people see political leaders, politicians and aspiring politicians as being responsible for buying uh, weapons to arm their followers uh, to be used to intimidate sort of opponents and for defensive purposes and so on. And another, you know, sort of potential source is uh, those weapons that originate 
in the PNG police and the PNG defence force themselves that are uh, illegally sold. That's Professor Sinclair Dinan from the Australian National University. That report from Samantha Donovan and our PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson, coming up a very ambitious scientific expedition in Antarctica. We'll tell you what it's all about. The already parlous state of opposition in Russia has been dealt another almighty blow after the suspicious death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony. The 47-year-old's body has been located now in a hospital morgue with bruises on the head and chest, according to one paramedic. Russian authorities have been dismantling memorials to the former activist and a Russian rights group says hundreds of people have been detained at protests around the country. Rachel Hayter reports. Years before his death in an Arctic penal colony, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was asked about that very outcome. My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple, not give up. He continues in Russian. If they decide to kill me, it means we are incredibly strong. We need to utilise this power. It's a message Mr Navalny's friend, co-founder of music group Pussy Riot, Nadia Tolokonokova, is trying to hold on to. She's protesting his death outside the Russian embassy in Berlin. I think it's a big blow for Russian opposition. It's going to be really difficult for us to unite because whether if you loved Navalny or didn't, there were people who disagreed with him on a number of things. He was our guiding star and he and people would define their positions and tactics and political views depending on what Navalny does and says. The Russian human rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been detained across 32 cities for protesting Mr Navalny's death, more than half of them in St Petersburg. There, Russian authorities are dismantling pop-up memorials, stuffing bunches of flowers into black plastic bags. The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has joined other world leaders in blaming the Russian President, Vladimir Putin, for Alexei Navalny's death. Brazil's President, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, is calling for a thorough investigation. But Russia expert from the University of Melbourne Law School, Will Partlett, believes that's unrealistic. He died in in one of the most remote prisons, fully controlled by the Russian government, by the Russian Correction Service. The investigative committee looks very uninterested in really doing anything serious about this. It could be that, you know, information comes out from individuals, you know, prison guards and so forth who saw something happen, who might leak it to... You know, there are still still good journalists in Russia trying to uncover this. So we might get something, but it won't come from any official inquiry, that's for sure. Associate Professor Partlett says Mr Navalny's colleagues will work to galvanise the Russian opposition movement in the wake of his death. His chief of staff is a guy named Leonid Volkov, who I'm sure will be taking a kind of leadership role. The leadership of the anti-corruption fund herself is Maria Pevchik, who's also a very, very impressive lawyer who's who's heading up his anti-corruption fund. So I think that those two will be kind of the leaders of his movement, in the at least in the short term. If Putin killed Navalny a month out from the Russian presidential election, which it seems like he did, why does Putin maintain this charade? What's in it for Putin to maintain this charade of democracy? 
That's a good question. So the, the central load-bearing form of legitimacy in Russia remains popularity and popular will. Even though these elections are essentially stacked so heavily in his favor, he needs to continue to have them to essentially show right this performance of democracy. But that's been you know that's been since the early '90s has been the basis of this highly centralized regime is that it's grounded on an idea of popular legitimacy and elections are at the very centre of that. But political consultant and former speechwriter for President Putin, Abbas Galyamov, warns Russia is now at a transition point. We are between authoritarianism, traditional authoritarianism and uh, totalitarian state. We haven't arrived yet, don't get me wrong. It's uh, It would be exaggeration to say it. But we are definitely on the way. Russian opposition media Novaya Gazeta Europe is reporting Alexei Navalny's body has now been found, bruised in an Arctic morgue. Rachel Hayter reporting there. Well, as you've no doubt been hearing ad nauseum, Australia's major stadiums have had no trouble selling tickets to Taylor Swift's blockbuster tour. But that's a sharp contrast with small and local live music venues across Australia where ticket sales have plummeted amid the cost of living crisis. Many venues that survived the pandemic have now been pushed to the brink by this new reality. And the industry says government help is needed now to keep as many doors open as possible. Jacqueline Breen takes a look. It's Soundcheck here at the Great Club in Marrickville in Sydney's Inner West a couple of hours before showtime. I don't think I'm getting much online. Owner Alison Avros is hoping for a late surge in ticket sales on the door. Well, we usually average about three to four gigs a week and we've got about two. We've had cancellations just because of poor ticket sales. In January I had, I think, four gigs and, yeah, we usually average about 12 to 15, so it's not been a great time. How are you doing? Uh, If you ask me that, I might (laughs) cry because it's pretty hard, I won't lie. Um, Yeah, but we've got a great gig on tonight, Mia Ray. Everyone should come down. Um, (laughs) Had to get that in there. Once a promoter, always a promoter. (laughs) After a tough couple of years and as live music goers pull back on their spending, the industry is under extreme pressure. Look, it's... You can be accused of being overly dramatic about things, but we think this is absolutely a national crisis. Dean Alston is the CEO of peak industry body APRA AMCOS. In a recent survey, it found 1,300 live music stages have been lost across Australia over the past five years. We risk losing institutions of major cultural value. If, if we lost the Opera House as a stage tomorrow, there would be screaming from all quarters. We're losing more than that. We're losing hundreds of stages from around the country. It is ultimately way more important than any single venue anywhere in Australia. The struggle for music festivals continues too. Last week, Groove in the Moo called off its scheduled events for this year, saying ticket sales have just been too low. Sam Whiting is a lecturer in creative industries at the University of South Australia. He says it's a perfect storm of factors. The biggest is low ticket sales in a cost of living crisis. Increasing overheads in terms of rent. Uh, Public liability insurance has rocketed post-pandemic. With festivals, we're dealing with more and more uncertain weather and that's being exacerbated by climate change. So it's difficult to put out that many fires 
at once. The problem has dawned on policymakers at different levels. The lockout laws that stifled Sydney's music scene were scrapped in the pandemic. The South Australian government's funding another round of grants, while Melbourne's Yarra City Council voted last week to investigate insurance costs. But Dean Ormston from APRA says federal help is needed in the form of tax breaks. We really think a tax offset is a way to tackle it. It would be a rebatable tax offset, which means as a venue, whether it has ever presented live music before or whether it's its first time offering, that at the end of a 12-month period, it would be able to claim particular expenses related to the presentation of live music in its tax return. So it would reduce the taxable income of a live music venue. Sam Whiting says the industry is also putting forward other innovative ideas, one floated by Adelaide's Independent Live Venues Alliance based on models overseas is a levy on ticket sales to major festivals or certain blockbuster stadium shows, especially featuring major international acts. What's being proposed here in South Australia is a big ticket levy where basically you've got a percentage on a major event charged, you know, it might be a thousand or two thousand capacity venue or festival percentage of that ticket is going to be recouped by state government and might be redistributed to helping small venues pay off a particular overhead. Back at the Great Club in Marrickville, Alison Avros and her team are ready to put on another show. Hers is one of those all-important mid-size venues, the sort of space where up-and-coming Australian acts can get noticed. There's artists that can't fill big stadiums, like, say, Taylor Swift. Um, You have to grow. You have to be able to find a safe space to be able to hone your craft. Like, you can't start just from the top. You have to start somewhere. And if we don't have that somewhere, then... Where are the opera houses? Where are the Acer arenas? You know, that's, yeah, that's, it's part of an ecosystem that's alive and we need it. Jacqueline Breen there and uh, the sound check too. Members of the government's Antarctic research arm have just completed one of the most ambitious scientific expeditions ever attempted on the frozen southern continent. They're part of a team looking for some of the oldest ice on the planet to uncover mysteries about our present that have been locked away, frozen in time for hundreds of thousands of years. But the journey nearly didn't happen at all. Tom Melville takes up the story. The most striking memory Joel Pedro has of the frozen continent happens to be his first. He'd studied it from afar for years, but he says nothing prepares you for the moment you first arrive. The first time you go there, it's it's like experiencing some force of nature that you didn't know existed before. Just the scale of the place and the height of the cliffs at the front of the ice shelves and there's nothing that kind of readies you for the scale of the place. And once you're there, you say, wow, I understand how this place can influence climate and ocean circulation around the world. You kind of feel that viscerally when you first go there, I think. Dr Pedro is a paleoclimate scientist and lead researcher on the Australian Antarctic Division's Million Year Ice Core project. He and his team plan to drill deep into Antarctic ice and analyse some of the oldest ice cores ever studied. That'll provide the longest continuous record of atmospheric carbon dioxide trends in the world. We want to get that record to understand more about uh, long-term climate stability um, and really what What are the factors that can push the Earth out of one climate state and into another? Sediments contained in ice cores are an amazing record of the planet's history. 
You can see fallout from nuclear tests and the advent of the motor car. You can see when we switched from leaded to unleaded petrol, volcanic eruptions, ice ages. It's all there. And that is kind of beautiful and exciting. And you kind of capture that metaphorically when you drill an ice core and you look down, you get this kind of refraction in the ice core borehole where you see this kind of deep blue and it's almost like it does kind of feel like you're looking back in time somehow. Dr Pedro's team was meant to be in Antarctica this summer, drilling the initial pilot holes. But in December, key members of the expedition team got sick. It was a pretty tough end to the year with a number of the important people, key people in the Traverse team, getting COVID at Casey Station. Dr Pedro had planned to drill in an area called Little Dome Sea, a high-altitude area of the Antarctic interior with some of the most stable ice on the continent. Getting there requires a massive effort, carting equipment more than 1,000 kilometres across one of the most hostile environments on the planet. While they didn't get to drill this year, a team made up of mechanics, plant operators, an electrician and a medical doctor did make the journey, called a traverse. Dr John Cherry led the mission. There's also issues with uh, constant sunlight, so as we go further south, um, the sun does, doesn't set anymore. It uh, stays in the sky for 24 hours a day, uh, which can affect your, your sleep cycles and uh, can pose a number of challenges. Um, we've also got uh, challenges with physically operating machinery and, and, and keeping machinery functional in those really challenging environments and challenging conditions. Dr Cherry headed a team of nine people, five tractors and two groomers, to smooth the path. This was the second traverse for this project. The first was last year. They're the longest and most difficult traverses attempted by Australian scientists since the 1960s. And the A factor definitely played a part. The reality of the environment that we work in means that small challenges can very quickly become bigger challenges. So towards the start of the season, we faced loss of key infrastructure that was damaged due to a significant storm event over winter. We faced challenges with uh, loss of key equipment. One of our tractors needed to be returned to Australia, which required a, a redesign of our traverse layout for the year. And we suffered loss of personnel from the program due to, uh, due to illness. But despite the fact that no actual drilling got done this year, the team still sees the traverse as a huge success. They dropped 36.5 tonnes of cargo out on the ice and got key systems in place. When drilling does finally get underway, at its peak, the team expects to bore around a kilometre per season and be at the deepest million-year-old ice by 2028. Tom Melville and Laura Corrigan there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. See you tomorrow. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Imagine what could happen to the cost of your groceries if the big supermarkets were in a price war to win your business. With Coles and Woolies dominating the market, it's not going to happen. Why? Because they want to keep their profits as high as possible. Today, Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg on his investigation into the tactics of the two big players. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.